Well, this morning we continue through our study of the Gospel of John, and uh, we're still going to be in John chapter 3 this morning, and we're going to be wrapping up that uh, nocturnal nighttime conversation between Jesus and this Pharisee named Nicodemus. And at this point, because we've already been hanging out with Nicodemus for a couple weeks, we could probably just call him Nick, right? Because we're pretty familiar with this guy. The first 21 verses of John chapter 3 chronicle for us this conversation. And as you already know, this man, Nicodemus, was a member of the Jewish religious authority, the Pharisees. And we saw two weeks ago how Nicodemus came to talk with Jesus at night, presumably because he was concerned of what his fellow Pharisees would think if they saw him coming to Jesus in broad daylight. And then interestingly, this section concludes with Jesus telling Nicodemus the following. And I'm reading here beginning in verse 19. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So we come full circle. This passage begins kind of ironically with a man, Nicodemus, seeking the light under the cover of darkness. And this section ends with Jesus talking about people who prefer darkness over light. This description of Nicodemus that we find in the beginning of this story paints for us a picture of a divided man, I think, and is really kind of a microcosm of Nicodemus's life at this time. John and his gospel will go on to give us two additional mentions of Nicodemus, one in chapter 7, another in chapter 19. And those passages hint that Nicodemus would, in time, mature into a more fully committed follower of Jesus. However, at this early date, he is neither fully in nor fully out. He is drawn to Jesus, but he still obviously fears the good opinion of his peers. And as verse 21 closes, as his conversation with Jesus comes to an end, it all kind of hangs in the balance. Which way would Nicodemus go? Which would go on to become the mastering impulse in Nicodemus' life? Would Nicodemus step out into the light, or would he retreat into darkness? Would he follow after Jesus or the world? Jesus, for his part, framed the issue with stark this or that kind of language. Incidentally, when, when people talk in this way, generally it makes me uncomfortable. I think we have this horrible tendency as human beings to take complicated issues and make them overly simplified. And sometimes we take very simple things and we complicate them with all these unnecessary layers. And so whenever somebody talks to me in this or that, black and white, it's this way or that way, I tend to get a little suspicious. But something we have to see here is that Jesus speaks in just this exact kind of way all the time. 
There is a narrow way that leads to life, and there is a broad way that leads to death, and there is no other way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is no way to the Father but through me. It's A or B. There's only to the left and to the right. There's goats and sheep. There's those who are on the inside of the ark and those who are on the outside of the ark. There, basically, Christianity is one of those faiths that's, that is binary. There's two options. And on the one hand, I really love that. Well, actually, on the entire hand, on both hands, I really love that because, because I'm um, not that bright. And so I love that it's just A or B. It, 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 there's nothing nuanced about this. Jesus isn't saying, well, you got to be like a computer scientist genius to understand what I'm going to tell you. He is saying you have a choice, and it is stark. It's what it is. There was no subtle nuance in what Jesus would say to Nicodemus that a third way was somehow possible for him. There could be no compromise between light and dark, Jesus in the world, truth and error. Nicodemus had to pick a lane. I think this is essentially what he says to this man who comes to the light under the cover of darkness. He finishes by saying, there are those who hate the light because their deeds are wicked and they love the dark, and there are those whose heart motivation is right and good, and they love the light and they come fully into the light. There's lovers of light and there's lovers of dark. Which are you, Nicodemus? Which are you? This is the question, I think, that hangs over this text as we study it together. Pick a lane, and there are only two, one that is narrow and another that is broad. One of the two lanes is difficult, but that leads to life and reward, and another is easy in this life, but it leads in the end to punishment and death. And in verses 17 through 18, Jesus makes this dynamic clear by articulating the stakes of the decision that hangs over Nicodemus and also us as well. In verse 17 and 18, he says this, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This verse comes right on the tail of verse 316, John 316. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. This is why I've come is to bring life, to bring a pardon, to bring grace and mercy. And then he says, I did not come into the world to condemn it, but in order that the world might be saved through him. But then he lays on Nicodemus uh, a a gut-check kind of reality moment. He says, I don't have to come in to bring, to condemn the world because the world is already condemned. I am coming to condemned people, offering them life and grace and mercy. This is what he says. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. You're walking dead. And I've come to the walking dead offering life. Don't think I've come to bring condemnation and wrath. That's not true this time, but that's already what's resting over all of humanity. I've come to bring life and salvation. 
Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Binary, left or right, sheeps or goat, you're saved or you're not, you're condemned or you're saved. There's no third way. This is it. Belief, true saving belief in Jesus is not just giving mental assent to the truth, but it's loving the truth of it. It's a belief that transforms us from the inside and gives us new desires and new motives. I think this is part of what Jesus is talking to Nicodemus about when he's talking about how uh, people who love the dark are don't, or don't hate the light because they're afraid their wickedness will be exposed as darkness. Jesus is saying these things to a Pharisee. Remember, Nicodemus is a Pharisee, and the Pharisees were like the Michael Jordans of law-keeping. They were the best at obeying the law. Nobody was better than these guys at doing all the do's and not doing all the don'ts. They're like a, just, they're famous law-keepers. They're famous do-gooders. If outward visible appearances were all that counted... There were no people more righteous and good and holy and deserving of salvation than the Pharisees. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus himself would hold up the Pharisees as the very summit of human law-keeping ability. He would say this, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven." This is Jesus holding up the very best that humans can offer as far as the ability to keep and observe the law of God. So the, but even then, the righteousness of the Pharisees was not enough, according to Jesus. The level of righteousness needed to enter heaven was somewhere out beyond the strict observance of even the Pharisees. And this would have been an alarming statement to both Pharisees and non-Pharisees alike. But then Jesus follows up that statement in the Sermon on the Mount with another that made heaven even more unattainable. He says, after giving several examples of what righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees would look like, he then comes back to this idea and he makes this statement, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Oof. (laughs) Well, that's completely unattainable. Uh, Even if the standard was that I had to play basketball as good as Michael Jordan, that's unattainable on all its own. But then, if the standard is I have to play absolutely perfectly, I never miss a shot. I never mess mess up a pass. I never commit a foul. I never break any of the rules. I, I I do it perfectly from day one until now, always and forever, I'm perfect. Wow, your basketball playing ability has to exceed even that of Michael Jordan. Your righteousness has to exceed even that of the scribes and Pharisees. And in fact, here's the actual standard, you have to be perfect. Completely unattainable. And this is what Jesus is trying to convince Nicodemus about throughout the entirety of their conversation. As Jesus already told Nicodemus in our study of verses 1 through 15, Jesus told him, you have to be born again in order to know salvation. 
And as he said in verse 16, salvation was found in belief in Jesus, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And this is good news to all of us whose righteousness falls short of the scribes and Pharisees. (laughs) This is great news to scribes and Pharisees. The only person for whom this is bad news are those who pridefully want to be their own savior, who hate the knock this is to their pride and all their efforts, that they have to come crawling to Jesus like a baby and ask him for what is needed. Again, Jesus said to Nicodemus, the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Something very important to notice about what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is that not all wicked deeds appear to be wicked. In other words, some things that are wicked from God's perspective might actually appear to be righteous in the eyes of men. And I suppose the opposite may also be true. Some people might do works of righteousness that are received and falsely interpreted by people as wickedness. I'm reminded here of David. Remember in the story of David and Goliath, David shows up at the battlefield and he has filled with a righteous indignation that this guy, Goliath, is challenging God's people. And he says, what will be done for the person who kills this uncircumcised Philistine? And his brother, do you remember how his brother lays into him? (laughs) Absolutely. He accuses him of many things. But basically boiling down to this, that you are full of pride. You are just full of yourself coming down here. Now, Scripture backs up David and says it was an act of great humility, that his, his uh, strength was in God, his faith was in God. But his brother looked on his little squirt brother David, and he says, oh, you are just full of yourself. He looks at a righteous act, and he ascribes wicked motives to it. And this goes in both directions. Now, Jesus is the light. He was referring to himself when he said that the light has come into the world. And by this light, some things are, quote, exposed, verse 20, and, quote, clearly seen, verse 21. Things that were hidden and not clearly visible before are exposed for what they truly are in the light of his presence. In other words, some things were thought to be good before being exposed as bad. And I think that the invisible thing that is exposed is the hidden motives of the heart. Uh, We've talked about this on many Sundays, but it's the Bible keeps coming back to this point. And anything the Bible repeats so often, I also feel comfortable repeating. What Jesus here is talking about, I think, is the hidden motives of the heart. Motives matter supremely in God's word. Much more than what we do, why we do it matters. I think, to God. It's very possible, and we see this, by the way, in many stories in the Bible, but the one I always like to illustrate it with is when Jesus is standing outside the treasure treasury in the temple, and he sees the widow bring her mite. 
and he sees the rich man come and dump loads of money in, and he says they've given out of their abundance, but she's given more. And what he's saying there, he's talking about the hidden motive of the heart. He also, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 6, he lays into people who stand on the street corner praying loudly. Is there anything wrong with praying publicly? No. But what he's doing there is he's criticizing people who pray publicly for the benefit of a human audience. It's not outwardly what they're doing that's wrong. It's the motive with which they're doing it that he's taking issue with. And anything else, we can, we, can, we can load up loads of examples, but you get the idea. What Jesus is saying here is that some things that are exposed in the light of who he is is the motives of Nicodemus' fellow Pharisees. All of their observance of the law, all of their flowing garments, all of the things that they do in their office, Jesus will go on throughout the Gospels to very consistently criticize as an effort to self-exalt, to self-glorify. He is taking issue with the hidden motives of people's hearts. In Matthew 22, Jesus says this about the Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus is taking issue with the hidden motives of the heart. This is that which has been hidden, but that stands out in stark relief in the light of Jesus' presence. Jesus, who knew, did not need testimony about what was in a man, but knew what was in a man. Man looks on the outward appearance, and it was the opinion of men that the Pharisees, like Nicodemus, cared most about. But Jesus looked on their hidden motives, and he saw that godliness was an accessory that they put on and took off as it suited them. It was not the inner reality of who they were. They were motivated, governed by a desire for self-exaltation and a prideful insistence that they could save themselves through law-keeping and works. And in this, they replaced a desire to glorify God, which is what worship is all about, with a desire to self-glorify. In other words, they had become worshipers of themselves. And rather than confess a need for a savior, they would pridefully insist that they could save themselves. All this talk about needing Jesus, about being born again, that being born of Abraham was not enough, and that their own law-keeping ability fell far short of what was needed for salvation was deeply offensive to these men who pridefully felt that they could save themselves that God owed them something because of their record of law-keeping. They had replaced God and called it service to God. They had replaced their need for a Savior with a, a very uh, pathetic belief that they could save themselves. Pathetic is maybe the wrong word. Inadequate. Let's use that. I think they were inadequate. They were deceived, self-deceived. 
Matthew 15, 8, again, speaking about outward appearances versus inner motives, says this, the people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. The heart is what matters to our God. One thing's for sure. So I think that's what he's talking about when he's talking about, he's telling Nicodemus, you know why you came here by night? (laughs) It's because you fear the opinion of those guys. And you know why those guys hate me so much? Let's, let's lay it all out there. It's because they're whitewashed tombs. Outwardly, they're squeaky clean. They're law-keeping do-gooders. But their belief in their goodness has made them hate the one who says that your goodness isn't good enough, that you're still a sinner. Their hidden motives of their heart, you're, you're getting in the way of their religion, which is to worship themselves. And so he lays it all out, that the reason why they don't want love the light is because their deeds are done in wickedness. They love the darkness. And so one thing's for sure, it, it kind of, when verse 21 comes to an end, I'm like, no, I want more. What did, what did Nicodemus say? Is this how the conversation ended? I wish we could get the next couple lines and in their interaction. But I think one thing's for sure. Nicodemus got way more out of this conversation than he had bargained for. I think he probably came away from this time with Jesus with a lot of troubling new ideas churning around inside of him. It's a bit like if you've ever taken a stick and stirred up a puddle. It becomes a brown, cloudy mess. And I'd be willing that, to bet that Nicodemus' mind was like a stirred-up puddle on the walk back home through the darkened streets. Jesus and Nicodemus had covered a lot of ground in their talk. Jesus had challenged Nicodemus's established notions about how a person gained favor with God. What was necessary for salvation? Where right knowledge comes from? Jesus had challenged Nicodemus's authority and his bona fides as a teacher. His peers, fellow Pharisees, the most looked up to and righteous men of Israel, Jesus had dismissed wholesale as workers of evil who loved darkness and hated the light. Many things that had just become bedrocks upon which Nicodemus had built his life, Jesus had just pulled them all right out from under this poor man. And I imagine him walking back home with his inner world topsy-turvy, mixed up, churned up, that his mind was a chaotic mess. Have you ever had this happen to you? I sure have. And I think the bigger question that probably hung over Nicodemus, if I understand this passage correctly from beginning to end, I think the thing that he probably would have walked away from feeling the keen edge of the most was the sense from what Jesus had said that he had to choose. It wasn't enough to just talk about these things in the abstract. Jesus and Nicodemus were not just armchair philosophers sparring, enjoying a good back and forth from which they could then go retire and drink coffee and enjoy being philosophical together. This is not what this kind of conversation was. Jesus is pressing Nicodemus to a point of decision. And he has to choose between the light and darkness himself, personally. 
Was embracing Jesus worth professional ruin? The loss of standing, friends, and fortune. Jesus finishes their conversation by challenging this man who again had come seeking the light under cover of darkness to pick a lane. <laughs> are you dark or are you light? Are you with me or are you going to live your life in service to the good opinion of your fellows? He could not live with one foot in both camps. He has to decide. And my personal conviction is that someone listening to this message this morning is in the same boat as Nicodemus. And it could be that this person is not yet a believer. I don't think Nicodemus is there yet when he has this conversation with Jesus. He feels drawn to Jesus, but there's yet much he does not yet understand. But walking away from this conversation, I think he would have been full of an awareness of some of the cost that must necessarily come with choosing one or the other. Jesus had made it very plain that if he chose the life that was easy now, it would lead to death and punishment in the end. And I think Jesus, if, if we take the full uh, spectrum of all that he says on this subject, which I think this is just a boiled down, condensed version of what we have in Scripture, of what he said to Nicodemus, is very plain that choosing life and reward at the end will involve a willing embrace of suffering here now. I don't think he said to Nicodemus, everything's going to be okay with your Pharisee friends <laughs> if you go with me. I don't think he said that. He never said that kind of thing to anybody. And so I think Nicodemus, maybe this person who's feeling the same pressure to decide is not yet a believer, and they're aware of the cost, maybe, that would come. I remember one time talking with a man who became a Christian. This is somebody I got to know very briefly in California when I lived out there. And when he was sharing his testimony, he said the first time he heard and became aware of the gospel was at a time in his life where he was living with his girlfriend. They had moved in together and were living together. And he went to some camp or conference or something and they laid out the gospel and he found himself believing. He was drawn to the truth of the gospel, but he was also aware that he had some sin stuff in his life that he couldn't embrace Jesus and still hold on to things like how he was living. And so he did not accept Jesus for years According to his testimony, eventually that relationship failed and they, they broke up and then he had a come to Jesus moment and then after that he got right. But think of how, what a ruinous decision that is. <laughs> Two years he could have died very easily without having made a decision for Jesus. What he did for two years was choose her over God. And I think Nicodemus here has a very similar problem. He's drawn to Jesus, but Jesus has just said, your whole peer group, this whole thing that you're a part of, that you're elbow deep in, is wickedness. It's institutionalized prejudice. It's institutionalized 
It's taking all of man's vanity and calling it service to God and religion. I, you can't have anything to do with it. <laughs> and Nicodemus is fully aware now that Jesus has painted this in a stark this or that kind of way. What's he going to do? It's tough. And maybe you're listening in this morning and you're saying, I am feeling drawn to Jesus. I believe the truth of the gospel, but I'm scared of what it will cost. And I can't tell you there won't be a cost. I'm just saying it's worth it. It is 100% worth it. It's worth whatever you have to pay, whatever you have to give up, whatever has to change and be transformed. It is worth it to embrace Jesus. 100%. Test me in this. Be brave. Nicodemus would have had to have extraordinary courage. And as we see later on, we see hints and flashes of the fact that he was a courageous man in many ways. But it may also be true that the person who is in Nicodemus's boat is already a believer. They feel drawn to Jesus, but there are other things that continue to compete with Jesus for mastery over their hearts and minds. We have one foot in the kingdom and another in the world, and we're content to live with divided loyalties. I think sometimes um, when a sin is not dealt with, when a love for the world is not dealt with at some point by God, and we continue to walk with Jesus, we can grow into this kind of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde kind of a Christian, where we really do sincerely believe we don't, just don't sincerely live what we believe. This happens. There's hypocrisy in me. There's hypocrisy in everyone and in the church. And in many ways, we feel tempted to keep a foot in both worlds. I'll be a Jesus guy, a kingdom guy, but I still really enjoy some entertainment that I think is dishonoring to God. Uh, there are some hidden patterns of sin in my life that rather than fighting, I've just kind of made my peace with them. I'm, I'm okay with that sin that's there. I'm okay with divided loyalties. And we can't be like that. Jesus says, uh, well, the Bible says a lot that addresses this in a very direct uh, way, kind of way. In 1 Kings 18, in Elijah's big showdown with the prophets of Baal, he confronted the people asking them, how long will you limp between two opinions? <laughs> Just kind of limping around. They're not fully functional. They lack function and power as a people. They're limping. They're broken. They're divided in their loyalties. In James 4, we read, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And in Matthew 6, Jesus said, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So these are just a smattering of verses, and there are more that we could find and quote, but I think you get the idea. Jesus is very insistent that we have to make a choice and live in that choice. 
And so a big question, though, is we could make that observation, but what do we do if this is true for us? What if over the course of our time together this morning, as you've been sitting there, the Holy Spirit has brought to mind that area, perhaps, where you have a divided loyalty, one foot in the kingdom and another in the world, and you're trying to maintain this chasm. And it's, it's growing to an unsustainable place. What do you do if that's true? Pastor Josh, what if I am friendly with the world? What if I find myself trying to please two masters? What if I am being drawn into a divided double life? Sometimes coming to the light under the cover of darkness and other times feigning light as a cover for my dark motives. What if this is true of me? What can I do about it? Uh, one of the quotes I fall back on a lot when these kinds of questions come up in my own heart is from St. Augustine. He said, God, command what you will, but give what you command. It's true that we have to trust God even for the ability to trust. <laughs> if, if I come to the awareness that the Holy Spirit gives me clarity to see clearly the danger of my position, that I am living with one foot in two different worlds, and God has shown that to me mercifully, then I need to also turn to him and say, I don't want it to be this way. I need you to give me what's needed to get out of here. <laughs> give me the courage. Give me the conviction. Give me new desires. Give me a hatred for what you hate. Give me a love for what you love. And so the first thing I think we have to do is just very simply confess it to God. If this is me, if I'm divided, confess it. In Psalm 51, it says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Psalm 51 is written by David in the wake of his affair with Bathsheba. For a long time, he was living a divided life. He was hiding the sin, and the prophet Nathan confronted David and brought him back into a right unity. He stepped out into the light. It was costly, very, but it was worth it. And he says here, I would, I would sacrifice something, but you don't want that. <laughs> I know you want my heart. The sacrifice that will be pleasing to you is a broken and a contrite heart. He comes to God. He confesses that he's wrong in his heart. This is the first place to go. The second, well, I would also quote this too. It says in, uh, well, the second thing I think that we would, can go is after confessing it, something that's very important for us to realize, especially as New Testament believers, is the importance of filling your mind with truth. In Romans 12, 2, it says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That's a powerful line, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. This transformation happens as a mysterious work of the Holy Spirit working in concert with God's word. We are really designed, human beings are designed in such a way that our feelings follow our thoughts. And if we're not filling our minds with God's truth, 
our hearts will inevitably drift into patterns of worldliness. I don't think sin will feel right and good unless we have filled our minds with error. The third thing I would say is this, put some feet to your love. You know, like if you've ever driven a car that's a, a standard, right? That's the one, the stick shift. Okay. <laughs> so I, I know how to drive stick. I think that's becoming a rare skill these days, maybe. Um, but if you've ever had a standard, uh, or I'm sorry, I'm misspeaking. I'm not good at cars. <laughs> if you've had a car that didn't have automatic steering, right, that's what I'm talking about. That's the analogy I'm looking for. Thank you. And you it stalled, and when you start to drive, you can't um, turn the wheel until it starts moving, right? You've all heard this analogy, and it's a true, it's a good one too, is that I think sometimes in order to get things turning and moving in the right direction, you have to begin moving in that direction. And so I think the next thing you should do is to put feet to your love, put feet to what you know is right, begin acting in ways that agree with your convictions, For example, I think one thing Nicodemus could have done, and he does do this in chapter 7, is to speak up in the midst of the Pharisees. Now, he has to, at some point, do something to take a step in the right direction. And Matthew 6.21 says, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so just begin laying up your treasure, begin acting and living in ways that agree with your convictions. So first, confess it. Two, fill your mind with truth. Get in God's word. Third, put feet to it. Begin acting in ways that agree with the truth that you know. And the fourth and last is eliminate the competition. In James 4.4, it says that loving the world equals hating God. The first of the Ten Commandments is you shall have no other God before me. Matthew 6.24 says you can't serve two masters. Luke 14.33, Jesus says, So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. To the extent that we're aware of that other thing that competes for Jesus for mastery over our hearts, we have to put that thing to death. We have to eliminate it. We, there is not just saying no to God, no, yes to God, it involves saying no to that other thing. I'm always reminded of the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and he says, what must I do? And Jesus says, you have to give away everything you have to the poor. And he walks away sad. He didn't do it. And we all know from the Bible that works don't save. It's not that we're all required when we come to Jesus to give away all that we have. What Jesus was doing in that moment was he was confronting the idol that that man had built in his heart to his wealth. Jesus, who knows what's in a man, looks on this rich young ruler and instantly sizes him up accurately as saying, you are drawn to me, but you love another also. And I won't share space with that big pile of money in your heart. You want to be mine, you must first really let me be yours. You got to get rid of that other God that you have, and then you can be a follower of mine. And he walked away sad. A hundred million years in eternity. What benefit will that pile of money be to him? I hope he, uh, that's another story. I wish we had the next chapter to. I wish we knew the rest of it. But in a more positive way, uh, more than just saying no and denying yourself and cutting off and eliminating the competition, I think the more powerful force is found when we delight ourselves in the Lord. 
Psalm 37, 4 through 5 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust him, and he will do this. I think that on the positive side, it's not just a matter of eliminating and cutting off, but it's reveling in God more and more, enjoying him, and he will grow in your affections. Let's pray. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, uh, just so grateful for this time in your word, thankful for Nicodemus. Father, I'm thankful for the way that Jesus lovingly, graciously, mercifully confronted Nicodemus about those things. And Father, you have had a similar conversation with us this morning too. Father, I pray that if there is one here this morning who is divided in their loyalties, or maybe one who is at the very front end of a conversation with you, who feels drawn to Jesus and the gospel, but is scared of the cost that will come with embracing it. God, I pray, Lord, that you would give us the courage, give us all that's needed to do what's right, to step out into the light. Maybe that has to begin with confessing to you and recommitting to getting to know you and spending time with you in your word, eliminating the competition and putting feet to our good intentions, to our convictions. But Father, in all of it, we just thank you for the way that uh, you confronted Nicodemus and confronted us through his story. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time together. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.